in the United States, there's a fascinating little town called Centralia. Uh, what makes Centralia fascinating is that it was all set to be an incredibly wealthy town because, you see, it sits on a 24 million tonne seam of coal. Unfortunately, in 1962, a fire at the local rubbish tip accidentally set fire to the coal seam. Uh, the fire department arrived, poured thousands of litres of water onto the fire, but every time they thought they'd put it out, it would sort of suddenly spring back again, a bit like those trick birthday candles that you get that you can never seem to blow out. So slowly this fire began to eat its way along the underground coal seam. Over time, smoke began sort of seeping out of the ground all over town. Uh, people began noticing that under their homes, the cellar walls and the cellar floors were starting to get hot to touch. In 1981, almost 20 years after the fire had started, a 12-year-old boy was playing in his grandmother's backyard and suddenly the ground caved in, a pillar of smoke came up and the poor little guy found himself clinging onto tree roots and screaming for help until someone rescued him from the 80-foot hole that had almost swallowed him up. That was when they decided to evacuate Centralia. Uh, Evidently, you can still drive in and visit the town. It still has plumes of smoke coming up everywhere, but it's now a ghost town. A Newsweek article has estimated that given the present rate of burning, there is enough coal under Centralia for the fire to keep burning for about another 1,000 years. Now, friends, I'm telling you all of that because if you can sort of have a mental picture of that town in your mind, okay, a town full of promise but now with plumes of smoke coming up everywhere, That's not a bad image to have in your head about what the church at Corinth was like when the Apostle Paul wrote the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians because Corinth was a church full of promise. And yet when Paul wrote this letter, there were thick plumes of smoke popping up everywhere in the sense that everywhere you turned in the church, new problems were rising up. New difficulties were rearing their ugly head. There are factions and divisions and elitism within the church. There is open hostility within the church as different members are taking each other to court. There is open sexual immorality in the church. Someone in the church is having sex with their stepmother and no one else seems to think there's a problem with that. People are getting drunk at church dinners. At their public meetings, prophets are leaping up with a word from the Lord. And not to be outdone by that, other people are popping up, uh, speaking in tongues. And in all the schmozzle that's going on, it's really annoying those people in the church who aren't into that sort of charismatic sort of stuff. The church is a mess. They are on the verge, just like Centralia, of a mass evacuation. But you see, all these problems that we're going to discover over the next few weeks... All these problems which at first seem so different, they are all in fact plumes of smoke coming from the one underground fire. They are all coming from the one underlying problem that is ruining the church. They don't actually understand the gospel properly. 
Oh, they're Christians, okay, some of them very impressive Christians, at least on the outside, but beneath the surface, they have not come to terms with the full implications of the death and resurrection of Jesus at all. Underneath the surface, they have not come to, to fully understand how they have been saved and who they are now that they have been saved. And their failure to fully get the gospel has resulted in all these problems popping up all over the place. And so in this letter, 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes to the church to help them sort out their problems. And what we're going to see time and time and time again is that Paul's solution to their problem is to remind them of the gospel. Now, there's no better place to see this than in the very first issue that Paul decides to tackle in the letter, the problem of divisions within the church. There's so many problems, it's sort of hard to know where to start. Paul picks on the issue of divisions within the church, the way certain pressure groups have developed around certain personalities. Paul describes it this way in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Now, Paul doesn't actually explain what it is about Paul himself or Apollos or Cephas that has caused these sorts of groups to develop. We can probably take a pretty good guess. See, perhaps Paul's following started because back in Acts chapter 18, it was Paul who first evangelised the city. Paul founded this church. And so, humanly speaking, there's a lot of people in the church who owe their faith to him. It's pretty understandable that a loyalty to him would have developed. Apollos, who's mentioned there on the other hand, he was a Christian teacher who came and taught at Corinth after Paul. Apollos was a high flyer. He was into Greek philosophy, he was very gifted, he was very clever and he was a very, very good public speaker, much better public speaker than the Apostle Paul. So it's not hard to imagine how a following uh, to Apollos would have uh, developed. News would have sort of swept around Corinth. Hey, have you heard the new guy in town? Man, that Apollos can preach. He is heaps better than boring old Paul. I'm stuck going to go to his church. Cephas is the Aramaic name for the Apostle Peter. The fact that they use his Aramaic name probably reflects that it's the Jewishness of Peter that would have attracted a following. Peter was more Jewish than Paul in the way he did stuff, especially more Jewish than Apollos, And that would have appealed to the conservative people, the traditional sector of the church. And then there was the Christ party. Um, Perhaps this was a group who was saying, hey, look, we're not into people, we're into Jesus. Technically a good thing to say. Sounds like they were saying it in that sort of smug, superior, divisive sort of way. And so the church has split into pressure groups and preferences. And I don't know, maybe they'd come along to their meetings like here and they'd sit in their own little groups and they'd talk to each other over morning tea. So over here is the Bryson party. They've got good taste. They like the way I do things, the way I preach. And over here's Alan party. They much prefer the way he does things. And up the back, see, there's there's the Wayne party. They much prefer the way Wayne does stuff. And the fences are up. And what started out as personal preferences has developed into pressure groups and cliques and divisions 
The battle lines are drawn. Now, can I just pause at this moment and say, to the best of my knowledge, this is not happening at DPC. Okay? I say that because the last time I preached on this section, which is, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, someone actually came up to me over morning tea afterwards and said, whoa, man, this church is a mess. I don't think I want to be here. As if, as if all this stuff must be happening here, otherwise why would I have chosen to preach on this passage? Friends, we're working through 1 Corinthians because we're going to find out some great stuff about the gospel. To the best of my knowledge, this level of divisiveness and disunity that's going on in Corinth, it's not happening here. But it's not impossible that it could. How does Paul respond? Well, in this morning section, he makes two important points. He's actually going to answer this problem right through to chapter 4. But in today's section, there's two main points. The first of which is that he reminds the Corinthians of just who they are now that they have been saved through Christ. Look, for example, how he pretty well starts the letter in verse 4. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Now, friends, it's interesting that Paul starts out this letter to such a troubled church. It's interesting that he starts out in such a positive way. And I think there's a reason for doing that. Because did you notice the abundance of the things that Paul describes in those verses? They've been enriched in every way, not just some. All kinds of speech, not just some. All knowledge, not just some. Not lacking any spiritual gift. In other words, I think Paul is starting this way because he wants to imply, guys, why are you fighting over? You have everything. You don't lack anything that matters. Through Christ, you have already got every single spiritual gift that God considers valuable. So why split your church over silly little things like personality or style of ministry? Who cares if Paulus is a better preacher? Why does it matter that that Peter is more Jewish than Paul? That sort of stuff is just so petty compared to what you have in Christ, compared to who you are in Christ. That seems to be Paul's first response to the Corinthian church regarding this issue of divisions. It's actually a lesson that he's going to return to later on in the letter. But for now, in today's section, by far the main response that Paul makes to this problem of divisions is not so much who they are, now that they've been saved, his main response is how it is that they've been saved in the first place. Look, for example, at what he goes on to say in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? These are, of course, rhetoric questions. You understand that? Paul's making the point that it was Christ who was crucified for them. It was Jesus' name that they'd been baptised into. And it's all building to this big point that by he- it's by hearing the message of Christ crucified. It's by hearing the message of the cross that they were saved. Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptise but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, 
The message of the cross is the power of God. Now, friends, do you see what Paul is getting at in those verses? In many ways, here is the centrepiece of this section. It is the gospel that saves people. It is the message of the cross that is the power of God for saving people. Not preaching styles, not personality types. The message about Jesus is where the action is. And so as to ensure that the church actually fully get the implications of this, what Paul now does is he goes on to explicitly mention two things that do not save people, even though they are two things that people often get very excited over. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom didn't know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Now, just as an aside, notice he's talking about the foolishness of what was preached there. That's because he doesn't think it's foolish. It's because he's picking up on how the world tends to think about the gospel. The way the world sort of thinks that telling people about a Jew who was publicly executed 2,000 years ago, that, that sounds pretty dumb. It's a weird sort of message. And because of the apparent foolishness of that message, the temptation is to underestimate its power and to think you've sort of got to boost the gospel along with some other things. Verse 22. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. So here are two things which people still often reach for to help the message of the gospel along, so they think. I mean, firstly, think about the miraculous signs. Even with Jesus, the Jews were always hassling him to do miracles, weren't they? They wanted big, spectacular demonstrations of God's power. They wanted to see people healed. They wanted to hear prophecy. They, they just wanted sensational things to happen. Still happens nowadays. Miracles just seem to impress us. I mean, imagine. Imagine at the end of this talk, I actually performed a miracle. Imagine I got the back wall to disappear. Not a trick, I actually did it. Got the wall to disappear. You saw it. Very handy if we go ahead with a building project. (laughs) But then I brought the wall back so that we could sing the last song off the screen. But I said that I would do it again next week. Man, I reckon next week this building would be packed. Don't you reckon the Christian grapevine in Dubbo would be working overtime during the week? Get along to the prezies. This guy has the power of God. He can make walls disappear. It is amazing. Let me tell you another way to fill this building. Imagine we had someone every week who was an absolutely brilliant public speaker. I'm talking someone who is simply superb. I'm talking someone who you would never, ever once look at your watch about. Someone who is witty, someone who is entertaining, got you laughing in the aisles, great story, someone who's got you on the edge of their seat every single minute, every single talk. You get someone in here like that, week in, week out, it'll be a lot easier to fill this building. It wouldn't actually matter what they say. Just the sheer entertainment value would attract people. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. 
a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, the wisdom of God. You're hearing Paul's point here. To the Jews who wanted miracles, the gospel seems pretty unexciting. To the Greeks who are into clever, entertaining ideas and speech, the gospel seems just too simplistic. Paul is saying none of the other stuff is needed for people to be saved. In fact, those other things can be downright unhelpful because when you start to think that you need those other things, you can start to think that, hey, that's where the power of God is at work, and it's not. God's power is at work through the simple message that Christ was crucified for our sins so we could be forgiven and be reconciled to God. That's it. That is where the power of God is. So did you notice what what Paul goes on to say about about himself in chapter 2, verse 1? And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Did you catch that? Paul resolved, he says. He deliberately decided, he consciously chose not to be clever. He actively decided to do nothing more than simply, clearly, not even cleverly, preach the gospel. So that when people were saved, and they were, read Acts 18, when people were saved, they would see that it wasn't the result of clever, persuasive words. It was the result of God's power working through the simple message of Christ crucified. And friends, you see where all this is heading? He's writing to a church family who are getting all hung up about styles of ministry. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. I like singing more songs. I like communion done more often. I like baptisms done this way. And Paul is saying, why are you getting agitated about that? None of that stuff saved anyone. It's the message of Christ crucified, which is the power of God. That's what saves people. Now, friends, these are good lessons that Paul is giving to the Corinthians. They're good lessons for us to heed. I mean, even just on a personal, individual level, don't you think? The lesson here that it is the message of the cross, the simple news of Christ crucified that God uses to save people, that is a very liberating truth. That's a very motivating truth if you think about it. Because it means that we don't have to be super smart. We don't have to be all that gifted with words to be used by God. We just need to pass on the news about Jesus. And so when you're next hanging the clothes out on the line and you get the chance to lean across the fence and tell your neighbour something about Jesus, in that apparently simple, foolish event, no less than the power of God himself is at work. When you've got friends around for dinner next time or when you're chatting over lunch at school or, or, or at work, and you know that moment when you take a deep breath and you start to share some of the things that Jesus has done for you through his death on the cross, you are actually unleashing the very power of God. That is a lovely thought. Friends, the gospel is what saves people, not our giftedness. So let's go for it. 
Don't be, please don't be silent because you, you don't think you're going to be persuasive enough or clever enough. I mean, the Apostle Paul deliberately chose not to be those things because sometimes those things can actually distract us from where the true power of God is, the message of the gospel. And not only for us as individuals, maybe for us as a church, it's good to hear that reminder also. Because, look, here we are at the beginning of a new year and the bulletins are crammed full of stuff, aren't they? Growth groups, women conferences, uh, men and machine nights, Sunday extras, weekends away, building projects, and all of that has its place. We want to be as good as we can be, but let's not forget that at the end of the day it's the gospel that saves people. And so a church family in which God's power and wisdom is being lived out, that isn't necessarily a church with lots of fun-sounding stuff happening. A church family where God's power and wisdom is really at work, that's not necessarily a church with a schmick building and miracles happening or great music or full of attractive people or great speakers. Or A truly power-filled church is a church in which Christ crucified is talked about and clearly explained. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? Here at the Church of Corinth... It's very much like that little town in the US that I mentioned earlier. Plumes of smoke, problems coming up everywhere. But it's all coming from that one underground fire. They haven't fully got the gospel yet. They haven't thought enough about who they are now that they've been saved and they haven't thought enough about how it is that they've been saved in the first place. And so when Paul starts out wanting to heal their divisions, stop the quarrelling, He doesn't send them off to a conflict resolution course. He doesn't send them off to mediation. He reminds them of the gospel. So as to help them to see that to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Friends, let's never get sick of hearing Christ crucified for our sins. No matter how sophisticated we think we become, that's the message that saves people. No matter how inadequate you think you are, that's a message that saves people. Let's never get sick of hearing it, sharing it. I'll pray. Father, thank you for this part of your word that is so ageless in its application. Father, it's so easy for us to feel intimidated when we don't feel clever enough, competent enough, Uh, Father, it's so easy for us to put our confidence in the wrong things. Thank you for the reminder, for the reality check this morning from your word that it is the simple message of Christ crucified for our sins that is your power to save people. Father, help us to be really good at faithfully, simply passing that message on and sticking with it in our own lives both as individuals and as a church family here in early church. It is in Jesus' name that we ask this, for his glory. Amen.